Your financial mission, should you choose to accept it, is to achieve financial clarity. New Intel suggests that bad financial actors are constantly filling the landscape with misinformation and other barriers and obstacles, leaving you with limited time to make the right choices for a successful financial future. To make things easier, we've chosen your team for you. Financial Commander Janine Theus will help lead you to success. As always, should you avoid the excellent guidance you're about to receive, you'll be disavowed. Also, this message will self-destruct in three seconds. Three, two, one. Another episode of Your Financial Mission is on the way. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Janine Theus. She is the CEO and founder of Theus Wealth Advisors, your financial commander in Columbia, Howard County area. You can find her online at theuswealthadvisors.com. That's theuswealthadvisors.com. Janine spent 21 years as a naval intelligence officer. Now she brings those brains and brawn to helping us tackle some of the <laughs> toughest issues in the financial world. You like that intro, didn't you, Janine? <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I hear you chuckling in the background. We've got a great show on the way today because we're going to be talking about how financial planning, what is it really? It's kind of interesting. It's not just about picking the right investments. It's not just about, hey, should I pick this stock or that stock? Or what return do I need on X investment to make this all work? No, sometimes, and in fact, I think we're going to argue on today's show, most of the time, it goes much, much deeper than that. So we're going to talk about how financial advising is really about solving problems. And we'll give you a couple of good examples on today's show. But before we get into that... Extra, extra, read all about it. It's time to see what's happening in the news. And this was a headline actually back at the beginning of 2018, Janine, but they did an update several months into this issue that then brought it back into the headlines, and so I thought it would be good to bring this up. I don't think we discussed it initially when it happened, but you may remember back at the beginning of the year, Seattle implemented this soda tax at the beginning of the year, and so far, now they've released an update, it's brought in more than $10 million in revenue. And so this is, you know, I guess one of those sin taxes where they put a tax on, you know, something we all like, like soda, and then, you know, collect the revenue. And it's paid big dividends, $10 million in Seattle. What's your opinion of taxes like this that are designed to kind of change people's buying habits or capitalize on their buying habits, I guess? Well, all you have to do is follow the money. Okay, it brought in $10 million in revenue. So what is the purpose of the soda tax, really? Is it to change people's habits or is it just another revenue driver? If you're um, celebrating the revenue, then you're not really, you know, mourning the fact that, oh, we didn't change anybody's habits. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, my other question would be, well, where did the money go? What did they use it for? Because ostensibly so many of these things are used. And this happened in Baltimore, too, where we're going to use it for education. Well, you know, Baltimore schools have some of the highest per capita spending per student of anywhere. And the results are bad. <laughs> They're miserable. <laughs> So, you know, the problem with this is soda taxes are being sold as a fix for some pretty big problems. You know, everything from obesity to education funding, like I just mentioned. And they're trying it everywhere from San Francisco to Philadelphia to West Virginia. So can this really deliver on the promise to change people's habits? One, I have a really big problem when the people in, you know, county councils or city councils start to say, we want to control your behavior. I have a problem with that because that leads to other problems in society. But when you look at the research, 
the soda taxes are narrow, punitive taxes that are a budget risk, potentially, and don't solve the health issue at all. Because what people do is change their habits. What you have to think about is our tax system, if you're talking income tax, is actually progressive. So the more you make, the more you pay. What's interesting about these taxes are they're regressive. So a 10% soda tax would burden high-income families, certainly. You know, it's like, you know, $24. While poor families are going to be harmed nearly twice as much. So they're going to be paying like $47 on this 10%. And that was a study done back in 2012. So a lot of people will say, well, it's fine to overtax low-income individuals because then the revenue goes to the government services that are enjoyed by low-income individuals. But that's pretty poor reasoning. And if it was the yeah, argument let, was valid, let's get them just, stuck in a loop. <laughs> the, that's, that's exactly the never right. the never ending circle of doom. Let's encourage and that's that. A, and that's exactly what happened. So they bring in the revenue. You get people, and so what are people going to do? They're just going to change the habits. Maybe they're not going to buy that soda. They're going to go buy this other high calorie drink they'll switch to, they'll the switch to juice. <laughs> switch to juice. Well, interestingly enough, you know it's caloric whack-a-mole because. <laughs> What they did when they looked at a couple of studies is people started buying a six-pack of beer because, you know, Philadelphia did this. And so they're 1.5 cents per ounce, which is ridiculous, you know, of sugar-sweetened beverage tax. It doesn't sound like much, but when you realize the effective tax rate is 20 times higher than the excise tax for alcohol. Wow. So what happened there is it was sticker shock. So it was $9 basically for a 12 pack of flavored sports drink, but it's only $7.99 or $8 for a 12 pack of beer. So easy, so easy you, decision, right? <laughs> yeah, it's easy decision. That's right. So it just, when they talk about it having, where it's a health issue, we're really going to focus on changing people's health, this crisis, this obesity crisis. It's BS because. Most of the calories people consume that have obesity issues is food. And yes, you can lose some weight if you stop drinking, you know, 10 sodas a day. But that's not really the issue, you know. So should we be taxing all-you-can-eat buffets or, you know, tax on simple carbohydrates and things like that? These people are kind of out of control. And it really does come down to follow the money. Yeah, It's just another revenue source. And do we really want a small group of people dictating our behaviors? So, yeah, I have a real problem with the soda tax because then I want to know where's the money being spent. Right, right. Well, that's a good breakdown. I appreciate that. And that's funny to kind of reveal some of the thought circles that are being kind of wrapped around there between these kinds of things. And, yeah, the true celebration would be if it had only brought in $500,000 in revenue. They'd be like, oh, what a bust of a tax. Oh, must be because people aren't buying as many sodas as we thought. It worked. We're making a healthier yeah. society, but actually people are just still buying. You're celebrating making all this money, and those who did get irked by it have switched to beer. So, <laughs> and, you know, and so what people don't realize is when they do this, a lot of times there's an economic consequence because then you have potential job losses because everyone, the retailers, distributors, and restaurants bound are going to be affected by that. So you're going to have smaller profit margins and job losses. <laughs> so every time when they try to micromanage behavior, there's a ripple effect yep. in the economy. And that is not where we want to be. Yep. 
Well, speaking of ripple effects, I think that's a really good segue into our main topic of the day, where we talk about real financial advising is not just picking these investments. It's about solving problems. And a lot of these problems happen in our lives from a financial perspective because something changes, something happens. Sometimes it's sudden, sometimes it's over time. But these things then have ripple effects on our financial plan as a whole. And if we wanted to, Janine, I think we could probably spend five, six, seven, eight podcasts talking about all the different types types of problems you solve as a financial advisor. We could create probably an endless list of all the different examples where you've solved a problem for somebody. But I thought we would take the time on today's show to maybe break down three or so problems that you see often and how you solve them. And the fact that they're great illustrators of how your job, your career, your livelihood is about more than just picking stocks and investments and that kind of thing. One great example to kick us off with is when Uncle Sam gets into the equation and we've got somebody with a tax-related problem. How does your planning process go a little bit deeper than just picking investments in a situation like that? Well, typically if someone comes in because, and there are many, many reasons that this can happen. You know, you didn't pay your taxes for a couple of years because you couldn't, or you just didn't get to it. Sometimes business owners do that. I don't recommend that because then Uncle Sam does come calling or you end up with a pretty hefty tax bill and you're pretty panicked over how to pay it. Now, there are some services out there that will help you maybe reduce the tax burden But generally, it's starting to think of how do I pay this down? And if I'm going to, like a lot of people have saved into qualified plans, if I'm going to start taking money out of a qualified plan before 59 and a half, there's a penalty after 59 and a half, there isn't, but you're still going to have a tax incurred. So if I have to take substantial money out this year to pay the taxes, then next year, I'm going to have a big tax bill because why I had to take money out of a qualified plan. And I've had a couple clients go through this. And one client in particular that I'm working with, we're trying to manage some of that because all of the money is in qualified money and he needs the money for various things that he's taken care of. And so it's trying to put kind of bumpers on how much do I pay down this year? What am I going to incur in tax next year? Because you can get into that loop where I'm withdrawing more, now I owe more. I'm withdrawing more, now I owe more. And it'll take years, unless you manage it, to manage that IRS debt, if you will, and then what comes due as you're paying down the debt. So, you know, rather than paying a substantial amount in one year, let's work with the IRS and kind of pay it over a number of years. And that's because when you pay the taxes, regardless, those taxes go away from you. That wealth goes away from you. So there's a lost opportunity cost on the ability to earn on that wealth that people often don't think about. Yeah, it's a great example. And taxes are such a huge issue, and it doesn't have anything to do with really investments. I mean, there can be tax consequences due to different investments, but the tax conversation is one that's totally and wholly separate from, you know, focusing on the return of an investment, something like that. So they're loosely linked, but you can see sort of that ripple effect that kind of, you know, pervades here. And one other aspect of that is if you're starting to look at, in retirement, if you structure how you're taking distributions from what bucket, what is the tax consequence of doing that? Because the more you take from basically provisional income, it's a combination of social security, ordinary income from distributions, and then any 
tax deferred, like muni bonds. If you're starting to look at that and you go above the threshold, more of your social security becomes taxable. So if you're trying to mitigate or lower your tax burden, the new tax laws make it a little easier to do that, but you've got to plan it. So that's more about the money decisions around the money and how do we keep more in your pocket? (laughs) Yeah. Big point there. All right, another great example here, Janine, would be somebody who is, and this is unfortunate when it happens in most cases, somebody who's forced into an early retirement. Different conversation than the taxes, but another great example about how the last thing on somebody's mind when that happens is, oh yeah, what's the performance of my number one stock right now, right? They have a lot of other things that all of a sudden enter the equation. Right, and there's a couple things that come into play there. Do you get downsized because the company decides they want younger workers? Or does your job just go away and you've been promised to be rehired and that doesn't happen because now they have a new CEO. And this has happened to a couple of clients. And when it happens to you in your 60, 62, 63, it's really difficult to get back into the job market because no one will admit it. There is age discrimination. So if you are now retired much earlier than you had planned, there's a holistic planning necessity that takes place because how is what you have currently saved, how is this all going to be structured on top of where's the healthcare coming from on top of when do I take social security? Because now I'm 62 or 63 and that's early and I hadn't planned to retire for five years or more. And I have one particular client that he's currently on disability because of knee issues. And so it's okay, how do we fix this? If we can fix it, can you get back to work? We have to get you know, the health fixed, then you can maybe do this. But if you can't go back, then we have to look at what is in your plan that's gonna work that allows you to live fairly comfortably without trying to tap into social security early. And so it's looking at the bigger picture, it's looking what all the pieces are, and everybody's different. I mean, that's what I love about problem solving is, okay, here are the issues, here's what I have to work with, you know, what the client has to work with. And let's see how we can optimize what they have to work with. The thing I try to remind people of is nothing is ever static because life is dynamic. Because you can't find something today doesn't mean you won't discover something next year. But let's keep moving forward with the planning and revisit it because things can happen that will change what you've planned. But for a lot of people who are forced into early retirement or, you know, become disabled and forced into early retirement, That's a big deal because also you hadn't planned to do that. And now I have to readjust my thinking about what am I going to (laughs) do? How am I going to stay engaged? Yeah. And then what is a realistic drawdown of assets? Because that changes the, I guess, color of the conversation when you'd plan to have X and now you might have to have Y. And that, you know, for some of the folks that I've seen, it's not terrible. It's not optimum. It's not what they wanted. But I remain, you know, today with the internet, there's so many ways to earn money. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, or build a business. And a lot of people are building businesses after they retire in their late 50s and 60s. So there are opportunities if you want to go down that route. Yeah, the online business thing is so wild for a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, Another story for another day. Yeah, and just a lot of people don't, because they haven't worked at that, it's a new idea. And it does require a little research, but it can be done. 
little learning curve, but it can be done. Yeah, it's a great point. All right, so that's if somebody's forced into an early retirement, and that is certainly an issue when that occurs. Something that is related, we'll kind of just stay in this theme for the rest of today's episode, but that would be somebody who has lost their job long before retirement age. So it's not just like, okay, I'm a year or two out from retirement, now I'm being forced into it a little bit earlier. But now we're talking several years before you were planning to retire. What kind of age are we maybe talking here, Janine? Are we in our mid-50s or something like that, mid to late 50s still, and they were maybe not planning to retire until 65? Is that probably kind of a good thought there? Yeah, I think you do see that. And so then the question is, do you want to stay or attempt to stay in the current field? Or do you want to change fields altogether? I did have a person come in who's 40, who wants to completely change fields. And I said, well, let's look at what's realistic, because I'm not opposed to doing that. It's just, let's look at what's real. If you change careers and this new career is going to take you five years out of the workforce, because you've got to go back to school, and then you've got to do this, 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 and this to get into that profession, now you're going to incur school debt and you're 40, okay, you've got basically 25 years before retirement, is that five years worth it? So it's there's a consideration there of, okay, is this realistic for me? If you lose a job and you're in your 50s and early 60s even, it is hard because there is age discrimination. There just is. And so you're looking at, okay, do I completely change careers? And then what's my ramp up time? Or can I do something else? Or can I start a blog site? But even a blog site will take you a while to develop. You know, there are a lot of other things. People need to be a little more flexible with what they're considering if this happens. And oftentimes you're going to take less in income, potentially. So it's a myriad discussion because there are any number of options depending on what you're willing to consider. It's not a good feeling for a lot of people when this first happens. And so it's working through those emotions of, okay, what comes next? Mm -hmm. Because now I'm changing completely what I thought I would be doing at 65 to 70. Right. Again, it's problem solving. And I look for positive outcomes and try to encourage positive outcomes rather than wallowing in, you know, kind of a negative approach. Some people have had to pull out of that negativity, but it's life. And so you're trying to deal with it as best you can. Well, there's always going to be complications, but there's always an advisor there to solve the problems. Your financial commander, Janine Theus, here on the show. And again, these are just some of the examples where financial planning really goes a lot deeper than just picking investments. It goes into that territory of true problem solving. So pretty neat. How often would you say, to kind of put a cap on today's conversation, Janine, how often would you say that happens? Have you ever had a meeting where it's just looking at investments and that's about it? Or do they pretty much all turn into solving problems at some point? They all turn into solving problems because a couple of my biggest questions to folks, what is the true purpose of the money? So for instance, this is a great example. I had a couple come in, they're not clients. And they were so proud. There was at the time, this was a couple of years ago, they were 64. They were so proud of the fact that they were bringing in $130,000. Now this is Howard County. The median income is 120. So they're very proud of bringing in 130. And they were only spending 90. And they were so proud of that. And it was awesome. And he was semi-retired. She completely doesn't work. But then I saw at the bottom of the sheet, there's $3.4 million. And I said, Well, hello. What? Yeah. (laughs) I said, "Um, okay, so are you planning to gift to your daughter? No, we're not ready to do that. 
how about charity? No, nope, we're not ready to do that either. I said, okay, you're both 64. What's the money for? And I probably asked six times, you know, what is the true purpose for this money? Are you leaving it to somebody? And they were so intent on being frugal, they could not see the bigger picture that they had this huge bucket of money that they either need to start spending or consider how they're going to leave a legacy or it's just going to go directly to the daughter. And I couldn't get him off that focus. We're leaving frugally. And it was very interesting. So I finally just asked her, I said, so he dies tomorrow. What are you going to do? She goes, I'm coming to see you. (laughs) I said, okay, that's great. Good answer. (laughs) Because money's just a tool. What do you want to do with it? And whether you have to retire early, you lose your job, what is the money for? So that's a bigger part of my conversation with clients. What are we doing with the money? And a lot of times as people have spent their entire lives in accumulation mode, saving, 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 you get into distribution mode and they have a problem spending. Hmm. So it's me giving permission, spend. It's funny the people that need that motive, that need that push, you know, usually it's the other way around, but there are plenty of people who are on the other side of that coin. And they're afraid to spend because they don't want to spend too much and run out. Yeah, yeah. So it's part of putting that in context of, okay, you can do this and you'll be totally fine. And for the next 10 to 15 years, go travel, go see your kids, go see your grandkids, go do something. Because when you hit your 80s, typically people don't travel as much. They're not doing as much. I mean, people are still active because you hear all the time. Some guy that just, he's the oldest guy to ever do the Ironman triathlon. He was like 86. Uh (laughs) I was blown away. I'm like, I never wanted to do that. But (laughs) there are people who do it. (laughs) But, you know, it's just having a conversation in context with money decisions around the money. Always so important to have those conversations. And if you're not having that kind of conversation with a financial advisor who can help you kind of go through those problems, and really before you get to the problems, a really important thing that you mentioned there, Janine, uncovering the purpose of your money. How do you want to use that tool? And if you don't have good answers for those kinds of questions, well, that's where this conversation can often begin. And then problems will arise naturally out of what you want to do, out of your goals. There's going to be obstacles and problems in the way. And that's where somebody like Janine steps into the equation to help you navigate around those obstacles or bust through them, depending on what strategy you need to utilize. If you want to learn more about Janine, listen to past podcasts, check her out online. You can do that by going to TheusWealthAdvisors.com. That's Theus, T-H-E-U-S, the U-S, wealthadvisors.com, or you can always call 443-718-6311. You'll speak with Gracie. She'll get you set all up for a time to meet with Janine. 443-718-6311, your number to call. Janine, thanks for the help, and we'll talk to you again on the next podcast. Thanks so much, Walter. Looking forward to it. We appreciate it. That's Janine Theus. I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time on Your Financial Mission. Your Financial Mission.